You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians, like I said, letter to a young church. Um, Interestingly enough for us, this is where we'll start, we have an account in the book of Acts of the founding of the church in Thessalonica. So I want to read that. It's Acts chapter 17. Uh, I encourage you to turn there. And while you're doing that, I'll say this. It, it, this, this narrative from Acts 17 colors the entire letter. Um, it's helpful background. It helps us understand the theology, specifically the king theology of, of Paul, and Je- that, that it refers to Jesus as the messianic king. Um, So this is just the chronicle of this event. So let's read together in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says this. Now, when they had passed through the region, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few, i.e., and many of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, one of the believers there. And they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason, this man, has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and the authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. So they, they take a bribe and let them go. And we hear right after that, uh, I won't read more of the verses, but that Paul and Timothy and Silas or Silvanus, that's the same person, um, escape in the night. They have to flee out of fear of death or imprisonment in Thessalonica. So quite the narrative, right? Paul plants this church in Thessalonica by spending about three different Sabbaths. So that could be consecutive weeks. It could be multiple. It could be more spread out. Like we don't know that they were just, but, but he's there at least three weeks. And on three different Sabbaths, the day in the synagogue for teaching, he is teaching the Jews, reasoning with them, saying, oh, oh, All of these prophecies in the Old Testament, all of this messianic, this salvific prophecy, this kingdom prophecy is fulfilled by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And and we're told many are persuaded. And not only that, there are Greeks hearing this happening. They're hearing how the Jewish Bible has been fulfilled. The Old Testament has been fulfilled in Christ, and they're converted. They're they're starting to get converted. And more than that, there's there's all these women leaders who are leaders in the the hierarchy of the citizenship of Thessalonica who who convert, and they're super influential. Um, And right, like this is, so Paul isn't using the New Testament in the New Testament to argue about Jesus, right? These events are recorded in the New Testament, so he's only using the Old Testament. That is all the scriptures before the life of Jesus. And so he's, he's pulling out the Old Testament. He's showing them, look, this is how Jesus fulfills this, and this is how Jesus fulfills this, and this is how he had to come and suffer and die and rise again, and this is what has happened in Jerusalem. And many, we are told, believe. Just two weeks ago, we saw on Ascension Sunday, that because Jesus is king 
everything has changed. And last week on Pentecost Sunday, we saw that King Jesus in heaven on the throne sent forth his Holy Spirit into the church to rule from within the people of God. And this was revolutionary. We're told that all these Jews and Greeks and leaders convert And what starts in Thessalonica in the synagogues explodes into the streets as mobs are formed in protest of the message of Jesus. We're told the world is turned upside down. Great, great verse, great imagery of what's going on in Thessalonica. The message that Jesus is king rocks the city to its core. And in Rome, there can only be one king, right? Caesar. And not only is Caesar king, In Roman mythology, Caesar is God. He's divine. And so the message that there is a divine king is an affront to the governmental structure of Rome. So the message of Jesus as messianic king is the message that rocks the city to its core. And this does not stop in Thessalonica. The whole Roman Empire will be rattled by Christianity until it falls in AD 476, in large part due to the rise of Christianity. Right, like you can you can kind of think and see how as the message that Jesus is the salvific king and God of the universe rises, the fact that Caesar was supposed to be those things diminishes in the Roman kingdom. So his influence and power over the region, which was divine power that he wielded, so of course you wouldn't deny Caesar of what was Caesar's. He's God. But as the message that Jesus is king and God rises in Rome, the empire the power of the emperor reign, oh, wanes until it crashes. Paul and Silas and Timothy, in the early days of the spread of Christianity, have to flee multiple places. Paul gets imprisoned, as you guys might know. Um, but it's these three who flee Thessalonica that write this letter now. And this, this is the dramatic backdrop of Paul's letter. So years later, they write to the church they began, maybe 40 years or so later after they started the church in Thessalonica, they write to her. And what we get is this outpouring of gratitude and reminder to the Thessalonians about their shared belief in the gospel, about their shared experience together, and what now, years later, Paul and company have heard regarding them. They've heard a lot of information regarding the Thessalonians. So these verses really build on one another, and they're going to build kind of a case and a chronological order of how the gospel works and changes us. And so I want to go through it verse by verse in that case, um, starting here in verse 1. Let's read. Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all all of you constantly are mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a brief greeting, and then we run right into gratitude. Gratitude for Paul and the apostles was not just something they practiced. It, it, it colors this letter. It colors all of their letters. Um, it's a foundational principle for their ministry that they would work in gratitude for what people are doing and for what the Lord is doing in people's lives. So gratitude is the door that they pass through in order to get into the bulk, the room of First Thessalonians. And they say this, ever since the city was turned upside down or, or really turned right side up because of the gospel and, and the proclamation of King Jesus, 
Paul and his and his co-planters, um, there had been this anxiety about the new church in Thessalonica, right? Like, so they left Thessalonica with in the hands of young citizen believers in the middle of the night who were facing death and oppression. And they leave in full hope that the Lord will continue to do something in them, but they don't know that for sure. And here they have... Um, Years later, they've gotten reports that the church has not only survived, it's thrived. It's thrived. It's, they worried that the church would lose their resolve, but that's not what happened. Their work of faith, their labor of steadfastness is worthy of praise and gratitude. The young church flourished, but why? Why did the young church flourish? That's where he goes next. Verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The church flourished because... God chose them to. Paul reminds them that, yes, they, they became believers after he, he came with the gospel message and proclaimed it, but that gospel message rooted in soil that God had prepared for them. God had chosen that there would be a church in Thessalonica, and what God chooses comes to pass. And so, theologically, something is going on here like, and Paul, if this is Paul's first letter, which I believe it is, and we're four verses in, Paul is making a case for election right out the gate. He's saying, the gospel was effective for you in word and in power because you have been chosen by God. You've been chosen by God. That's why you exist. That's why this, this small church plant in the middle of oppression in a, in a city that is um, totally against the message of Jesus Christ as the Savior King. That's why this church has not only survived, it's thrived. And we're going to get into that in a moment, why, how we know it's thrived. But, but this is why we pray for unbelievers, right? Like we pray that the Lord would prepare the way for the gospel word to take root in the people we love in our lives. We pray for non-believers that they'd be receptive to the gospel message of the risen and reigning Christ that we will with joy proclaim. So with confidence that God would save some in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas and Timothy go there and they preach the word boldly in the synagogue. And it turns the city upside down, we are told. It transforms the lives of individuals and the whole city is forever changed. It says this, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So after hearing the gospel, um, we're told that the Thessalonians, there is a power displayed in them. We're told that there's a power that displayed in them. So what this is saying is this, a mental understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done is not enough to save you. Here's what I mean. Um, go watch on YouTube, a Richard Dawkins video, or don't, um, but he, he's a famous atheist, and uh, the man can articulate the gospel. He, he, he knows the facts of the gospel, right? He can, he can, he can say that, um, yeah, this is what Christians believe, that, that Jesus was God, was born sinless, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death for the sins of the world, um, rose from the grave in victory, ascended to the heavenly, sent his spirit on the earth, he can articulate all that, but he'll always follow it up with, I just think that's horrible, and I don't believe it. I just think that's horrible, and I don't believe it. An understanding of the facts and talking points of the gospel, while helpful, while a great starting place, is not the power to save. 
The power to save comes from the Holy Spirit. The reformers understood this. Um, they kind of talked, when they talked about faith, they said, well, well, to have faith in Jesus that saves you, there's really three aspects of that faith. The first one is just what we talked about. It's the Dawkins understanding. The first aspect of faith is to understand like the words that are coming out of our mouth when we say the gospel, like understanding what Christians believe. Not, and I would argue that a lot of our world doesn't understand what we believe, right? I've, I've got friends who I've, I feel like I've told the gospel to over and over again, and they'll still say things like, yeah, I just think I'm, I'm a good enough person that at the, end of, at the end of all things, if there is a God, then I'll be saved. That's literally not the gospel that I'm, I'm telling you that none of us are good enough, that we need a mediator and an atoner on our behalf, right? We need, we need someone to mediate God's truth and blessing to us because we can't be good enough. That's that's part of the gospel, but just to articulate the, the facts of the gospel is not enough. This is the first aspect of faith, is to be able to articulate. We have to move beyond articulation and understanding of the facts of the gospel and move toward believing in them. Believing in them is the second aspect of faith. So, um, it's not enough to understand Jesus as God who lived a perfect life and atoned at perfect death and rose from the dead and rules and reigns now. We also must believe that he was and is and did those things. But does that save us? This is a really fine line between the second and third aspect of faith because we have evidence in the Bible that believing in it does not save you alone. Right? Like the demons believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, and they shudder. It's not good news for them. It's not good news for them, even though they believe it's true. The third aspect of faith is to move from understanding the facts to believing the facts to submitting yourself to the facts. Right? Submission is the third aspect. And it's a fine line. Um, and most of the time, for us, if you believe, there's like an almost immediate submission. Because if you really do believe Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, then you will submit yourself to the true king. The final aspect of faith is to submit to those things. This is conversion. That's when the power of the Holy Spirit comes within us. And so the authors are saying, you have this gospel You've been chosen, you, you've heard the gospel, and we know it's true because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit is evidence that they've been changed. And again, I'd like to point out another, if this is Paul's first letter and we've, we're only five verses in, we have a presentation of the triune God and his work already. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have re verse three, remember the God, remember you before God, our Father. We remember you and your work and hope of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and you have been granted the power of the Holy Spirit. So in five verses, Paul has argued in gratitude for election. He's argued for triune God, the triune God, the Trinity. And now he's going to appeal to God who has saved the Thessalonians and move from reminding them of their salvation to, to reminding them of their, the, the implications of the gospel being true for them. So he moved from remembrance to implication. Look at the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6. It says this, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
So you might think maybe the order is kind of wonky here, right? Like Paul says, you imitated us, and then you imitated the Lord. Um, and as that kind of struck me this week, it was uh, there, there also came this understanding of, oh, well, actually, this is kind of the order for, for all new Christians, right? When, when we first become Christians, most of the time, we first are being discipled by mature Christians in the faith. And by mature, I just mean anybody who's had walked with Jesus for kind of any amount of time. Um, and, and at first, we're imitating them as they imitate Jesus. Paul talks about this idea a lot, follow me as I follow Christ, right? We ask brothers and sisters who are older in faith, not necessarily older in age, but often that's the case. We ask them what it, what it looks like, and we learn from them about what it looks like and means, and, and practically, what are the practical implications of following Jesus? So we we, we follow this, this track, right? Like the gospel takes root in the Thessalonians, in the soil that God has prepared. They submit themselves to the King Jesus. The conviction of the Holy Spirit begins within them. And because that same spirit is in Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the, the conviction first manifests itself in, in their imitation of them and then of Jesus, right? Like they're saying things like, I want to be like Paul because of because of Paul's gospel confidence and his, his boldness and his gentleness and his hospitality and his, and his humility, those things communicate to me that he knows and follows Jesus. So if I start with imitating him, then as I learn and grow up in my faith, I can, I can continue to follow and walk with brothers and sisters who are following Jesus, and I can walk with Jesus myself and learn directly from the Lord. So the order isn't wrong here. It's, it's ordered um, not by importance or priority, but, it, but chronologically, Right? Like they imitated the mature believers as they learned to imitate Jesus. And this is the result of that. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So we see that as they grow in their faith, not only are they imitating mature believers around them, they, they transform into those who imitate Jesus and learn from Jesus directly, and then they become worthy of imitation. The young church that... Paul left in Thessalonica has now been become famous in the region for being worthy of imitation. How did they grow their faith? How did this happen? How did this transformation happen? Uh, kick back just a second to verse six. It says this, they received, the Thessalonians received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, they were imitators of Paul and Silas, and they became imitators of Jesus they went through suffering, and then they became worthy of imitation. There, there's almost a, we're almost supposed to look at the middle, what is the sandwich between the imitation from becoming an imitator to one worthy of imitation? Paul might argue that through suffering, through affliction, we grow up into our faith. Through suffering, they grew into their faith, which was worthy of imitation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though they suffered as Thessalonica is turned upside down, even though Christians are grabbed by the neck and pulled before authorities, imprisoned or killed, they have joy, we are told. The gift of joy through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that, it's joy in suffering that enraptures the region that Macedonia and Achaia and now Paul even here is hearing about the faith of the Thessalonians. 
when Christians who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ suffer and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they display that supernatural divine joy. What happens? Verse eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Very Paul-esque there to say something and then say, I don't need to say anything and then keep saying stuff. When Christians suffer with joy from the Holy Spirit, the gospel spreads. People are saved. A movement happens. Um, Theo, can you put that map up? So I want to show you where Thessalonica is. You could kind of see it right in the middle. Forgive us, this is like the lowest quality projector Amazon sells, but um, I think you can literally see every pixel. But so you could see like Thessalonica is that little um, area. It's the capital of Macedonia. It's a military base because it's, it's strategic location in and around the the sea and on the uh, between Greece and Asia. And it, it's on this road, this red road, um, which is called the Via Egnatia, which is a primary trade route from Asia all the way to Rome. This is like the boot of Italy right there, where it says Brindisi, I think. Um, which means this, Thessalonica was a city such that when Thessalonica got turned upside down, it was non-ignorable. It was a non-ignorable city in the region. That's why God chose to do this in Thessalonica in such a way that the gospel spreads. It spreads in a way that is unstoppable by the Roman Empire, um, and, and we're going to talk about this more in Thessalonians, especially as we talk about like sexual morality and stuff. But as the um, as Christianity spreads in the Roman Empire, sexual slavery becomes illegal. You can track Christianity's spread by oppression ceasing in Rome of women. It's miraculous. I think Thessalonica is a lot like Houston on I ten. I ten connects the east to the west of the United States. But not only that, Houston is a global city. It's the most diverse city in the nation right now. There's, there are global ports. There are people coming here from all over the world to work or study, and then they return home. And what if, just like Thessalonica, revival broke out, Houston got turned upside down and, and submitted to Christ as king, and then throughout the nations, there became a revival. I, I do think... If Houston experienced revival like Thessalonica, it's, it's very likely that the world might experience revival. Th this is what happened in Thessalonica. Thessalonica went, so went Rome. Verse 9, um, it moves me to think of that. I think we should pray towards that end. Um, Verse 9, it says this, For they themselves report concerning us that the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right, the gospel has spread so much from the church in Thessalonica that Paul and Silas and Timothy have people coming to them from all over the world saying, I heard about what's happening in Thessalonica, and maybe they're saved, maybe they're Christians, and maybe they're saying, oh, are you the Paul who started the church in Thessalonica? I got saved in Thessalonica. Or I got saved by a brother who came from Thessalonica. Oh, you, you planted that? You're the Paul who got run out of Thessalonica by, by the Roman government? Man, that's, I got saved from somebody who was there. And the reality is, it, it's very likely that throughout the thousands of years of generations, 
all of us in the room were saved from somebody, if we trace it back, possibly from Thessalonica. The, the, the Thessalonians have, what, what is Paul hearing? He's hearing that they've turned from idols to worship the true God, is what he says. Idols here probably means on one level the actual false idols of the polytheistic Roman culture, their, their religion. They've turned from the idols of Roman worship. But also it means they've turned from the Roman way of life, the Roman way and culture that, that was enslaving because of sin. And, and so what is the point of all of this world-changing gospel the point is the way they end this letter. He says this, verse 10, uh, I'm going to read a little bit of verse 9. You turn from idols to God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is going to be a theme in the letter as well. Paul reminds them who they are in the triune God, serving the king of the universe, who is Jesus he reminds them that they were chosen by God before he even arrived in Thessalonica with the gospel and that the word and power of the gospel would take root in them through the Holy Spirit. He reminds them that that happened. He reminds them that their faith has become famous because they had joy in suffering and oppression. He reminds them that in this, not only did they start by imitating them and then imitate Jesus, he reminds them that through their suffering, they matured in the faith to an extent that they're worthy of imitation in the whole kingdom, the whole Roman Empire, he reminds them that in their conviction, they've turned from idols to worship the true and living God through the true gospel. He reminds them that because of the power of God working in their lives and testimony, the gospel has shockwaved out of Thessalonica. And now he ends verse 10 with a reminder of the stakes. He says, Jesus was raised from the dead, and because he was raised from the dead, you have been delivered from one state to another, the state of wrath to the state of kingdom. He says, you've been delivered from the wrath to come. And the reason he says that is because he wants them to remember how high the stakes were. They didn't even know the stakes, right? Like when they first heard the gospel, they didn't, they didn't know they were destined for hell. They didn't know that because of sin, God would come and judge the living and the dead and say all who are not in Christ are worthy of judgment because sin is an affront to a righteous and holy God. They didn't, they didn't, they probably got that somewhere in there, but it says Paul told them that Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures, that he was king. And yet he reminds them here that, that, that there was a reality that was facing them, that there was wrath to come. There was wrath to come. He's going to work this out throughout the rest of the letter. I get it. Maybe that's uncomfortable, but it's not untrue. The reality is there is righteous wrath coming for those who are not in Christ, Unless you, you understand the gospel, believe it's true, and submit to Jesus and his kingdom, turning from any idol and living and worshiping the true God, then wrath, judgment, and ultimately hell await. The, the stakes are very high, is what he's telling them. So he, he's not wanting them to feel down. <laughs> he's wanting them to feel encouraged and this is why they should be encouraged because for the Christians in Thessalonica and the Christians in this room you have been delivered by Jesus from wrath into a kingdom into life from death into life from judgment into forgiveness from sin into holiness 
And if you haven't submitted to Jesus, if you don't believe this is true, if you haven't taken that step and said, I, I, I actually have never, I don't know if I believe this or not, I want to invite you to believe that right now. And I'm not just saying that. I want to invite you to believe it right now. And maybe that means you come talk to me after the gathering, or maybe that's uh, scary, although I don't feel like I'm very scary, could be. Um, then talk to somebody around you and just say, hey, can I, can I get, uh, this is going to be bold, weird question, I don't even know you really, but can we get coffee this week? Because I don't, I don't think I believe this, but I think I'd like to. Um, because the stakes are high, and because of the upside down, right side up turning of the gospel in cities and in lives, we have the opportunity to offer people the gospel. The letter will continue to teach about what it means to imitate God, what it means to conduct ourselves with integrity by the power of the Holy Spirit, what it means to walk in joy and gratitude, what it means and looks like to love each other with unity, sacrifice, and holiness. And it ends with this long teaching regarding the end of all things, which we will get to as the summer goes on when Jesus returns and that judgment begins. But if your world has been turned upside down, or right side up rather, through the powerful gospel of Jesus, we are to remember and be encouraged by Paul's words here, not distraught. Because he was raised from the dead, Paul says, you have been delivered from the wrath to come. And where do you get delivered to the table? That's why we do this every week. You sit at the table of Jesus, and who sits at people's tables? Friends. Family, beloved, you don't sit at the table of wrath, you sit at the table of the king. So that's what we're supposed to remember. And as we feast together this morning, it's simply a foretaste of the table that we sit at for eternity with Jesus, our king. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we need you. We are, uh, we are desperate to submit to you as king. We love you. And if there are some in the room who don't know you, I pray right now, Lord, that they would, by the power and conviction of your Holy Spirit, be drawn to submit to you. Maybe they would pray, Lord, I don't know what all of this looks like. I don't know what all of this means. However, I believe you are who you said you are, God incarnate. You lived a perfect life that could be applied to me. You died a sinless death for those who are sinful, and you rose from the dead. I believe these things. We believe these things, Lord. And so, not only do we know the facts, not only do we believe in them, we submit to you as king. We submit ourselves to them being true, and we appeal, like the song says, rock of ages, cleft for us, open for us. Let us hide ourselves in the rock of Christ, our King, and our world will be turned upside down in such a way that our neighbor's worlds will be turned upside down, or right side up, rather, and our city and our world could follow suit. Lord, you have promised these things. So we ask for them. Be with us by your grace and comfort through your Holy Spirit. We need you every day. In your name we pray, amen.